Left. Right. This is part two of our episode, Thought Experiments in Philosophical Dilemmas, where we introduce a number of situations, some real, some hypothetical, some real with hypothetical constraints, where there are situations that you might be in or someone is in where the right answer isn't all that clear. There may be multiple right answers, both with downsides. Either way, I think you'll like this episode. Uh, I'd like to thank both of our viewers, and if you are neither of them, uh, now would be the time to subscribe. So, thank you. See you guys on the other end. This is Sip Talk. Grab a drink and enjoy. <laughs> Cheers. 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 We are live. Welcome to SIP Talk, episode 225. Today is a follow-up to our thought experiments in philosophical dilemma episode, episode 224. Logical follow-up being 225. My name is Justin DeGiulio, joined by James, the Bosnator Boswell, philosopher, philanderer, philanthropist, among other PAs. Fiddler, philatelist. There you go. Um, James, let me ask you how it's hanging down there in sunny South Carolina. Dude, it has been so hot this week. Like today, we had a break, but um, like I went for a run on Monday, and it felt like I was running through soup. And like, um, like it was like high nineties with dew points at like eighty five plus. Like I, I was looking at some of the weather stations around Charleston, and I'm not joking. The heat indexes that they were reporting were like one twenty five to one thirty. <laughs> and you went for a run on this day. I went for a run in the evening, but that I... didn't help very much because it was still like. 85 degrees and like a dew point of 83 so it's just like breathing liquid i uh, i like running uh and pretty extremely. um but it will beat you up and it will literally empty your body of any i mean you just get fully dehydrated through that run so as soon as you finish you need sugar you need electrolytes and you need fucking water really bad speaking of water i won't be drinking any i don't even have ice cubes i just have a big full glass of scotch um, You're just drinking it, just, like neat. Yeah, well, you know, I, I didn't. <laughs> that's, I, that's... As I told you last week, I only have the big handle. I threw away the smaller bottle to decant it from. I don't feel like bringing the handle with me. Just to, so I just poured a big glass. Yeah, down. that's just that's a heavy dose of neat. Uh, it's a heavy dose of neat because I because I'm a neat guy. Um, so uh, last week we brought up some great uh, philosophical dilemmas and some thought experiments and, and we kind of dissected them and shared our perspective. We didn't even get halfway through the list. Uh, we have two lists. There's a little bit of overlap, but I really think what we should do is try our best to pick up where we left off. I think this is a pretty cool topic. I brought it up in my office today and people are like, oh, holy cow, that's a really good question. And uh, they, to the two people I was talking to had completely opposite answers to the same question. And then I upped to Annie saying, well, what if you change this? And the, the first question I asked, well, I did this a few times. The first question I asked was the train tracks question, right? The trains going down the tracks, uh, half mile down the tracks, there's six people tied to the tracks. 
Uh, you could divert the tracks a different way, but that way there is one person tied to the track. So if you divert the train, you save six people, one dies. Would you pull the lever? And one person was like, hell no, I wouldn't pull the lever. I wouldn't want to kill one person. I'd want nothing to do with it. I'd just let the train go. That's kind of my answer. That, that, which was your answer. The other person was like, how could I sit by and watch six innocent people die when I could have saved them? Well, what you do is you walk away so you don't see it. <laughs> That's what people do in New York, I think. When there's any <laughs> crime in the streets, they just continue. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a curveball with you on this one. And I want to introduce a topic that is not on the list, oh, but I don't was I just, can handle this. Yes, you can. It was, <laughs> I, it came up between me and my roommate a couple of days ago. Um, so in world war two, both Germany and, um, Japan had like divisions of scientists that were conducting horrific experiments on people. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've heard of this. And so after the war, a lot of superhero movies based on this, by the way. Yeah. Um, like, All right, so after the war, so you, after get the out, war get out, yeah. we have these captured scientists from either Nazi Germany or Japan. Okay. And we know what horrible things that they did. And we also know that even though these experiments were utterly horrible, there was some th- there were some things that these scientists learned and so the question is we have these scientists captured and we're we're basically faced with the choice of do we punish these people for what they did but we aren't going to get the knowledge that they have or do we get the knowledge that they have basically in an exchange for some kind of amnesty where like they they aren't going to prison like they they move to this country and they can live their lives and they're not going to face like criminal consequences are, are you on a de- did. are you on a delay is your wi-fi all right it's just coming out real real slow <laughs> no I'm, 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 thinking, I'm trying to think through how to like phrase the question yeah well so i think i think the best thing was we would just send them to brazil right isn't that what ended up happening no that some of the nazis sent themselves to argentina and yeah, that was that they wouldn't back. be found okay these are enough. these are not these are nazi or japanese scientists that so, we captured so, you, so we've got scientists that basically were just doing cruel and inhumane experiments on people not just yep. animals but and, and and animals also by the way um but they were torturing people and basically seeing what they could do, try to affect people, the, the genome and make people transform and inject people with metal and peel. Oh, like they were, the, one of the experiments that the Japanese scientists did is they, they put a hand grenade in a room and they'd have a person stand one meter away from it and then detonate it and see, OK, did that kill him? OK, well, let's have another person go in there. We'll have them two meters away. <laughs> and eventually they'd be like, OK, this is the lethal radius of a grenade. And like, there's a better way to test for that, but they didn't care because they were at war and they didn't like the Chinese because the Chinese, like they captured Chinese people. All right. right. So the question is, so the question is, what do you do? Do you grant these people amnesty and basically forgiveness for what they did in exchange for the knowledge? Or do you punish them for the horrible things that they did? Um, I think the best way to do it would be. Uh, I mean, we fucked with people so much in wartime. I feel like we could just like pretend that that they were free and just get all their information. Then, 
put them in jail. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. So is there an answer? Did, what do we do? I don't know. What do we do? You don't have an answer. Well, I can tell you what we did. All right. So what, what did we, we did do? was we gave forgiveness to these people and used their scientific knowledge for various things. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that I think we should have punished them. That I, I, I'd say the price of that knowledge is too high. Well, I mean, the thing is, the experiments had already happened, and you know, the the, the Christian belief would be to forgive them. I don't know. That's one. Uh, this is a thought experiment. I'm not saying we should do that. Well, it's a, I mean, it's a thought other... experiment, but it also happened in real life. Well, I'm just playing the other hand. Um, all right, you got me all out of sorts with this very long-winded uh, thought experiment that was unscripted. Can we can we hit our list? What do you think? All right. So the first one is. Social media misinformation. And again, this is less of a thought experiment than just like what's happening in real life, which is. Yeah. And I I think it's actually it's a good topic for us to discuss because a lot of people I don't think it's on their radar. A lot of people, obviously it is. But many people don't think about this. And it's actually playing out in real time right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll I'll, you read the. the, I'm going to summarize it because it's long winded and we can get to the point much faster, which is you're running a social media company. And you notice that a lot of people and even some organizations are intentionally or unwittingly sharing information that's false or misleading. And these posts seem to be generating a lot of interest on your platform. So engagement on these misleading and false posts is really high. Some of these false posts are even being made by prominent politicians. Do you have a moral obligation to flag or censor this false information? Do you have a free speech obligation to allow users to freely voice their views, even if they're spreading misinformation? And what should you do to moderate content on this site that you own and operate? Uh, So the way that I would relate this, I mean, now it's like everybody's familiar with the scenario, but the way that I would look at it is you have a public square in a town. In the public square, people can gather and they can say what they want. Anybody can be there. Uh, they can share whatever their thoughts are. They can stand on stage. And if they get booed down, they get booed down because the people will self-moderate, right? The people should self-moderate. The people that get, get booed down probably won't continue to speak. They won't get much interest. Some people might have some wrong ideas, uh, but they might have some charisma and people may stand behind them. Who knows? But is it the town's responsibility to figure out who's allowed to speak, who's allowed to stand in their soapbox, who's allowed to get on stage, and what they're allowed to say? Yes. So, so the 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 question is, where? So, when bad things start happening, who needs to take responsibility for them? The town, or the people? And do the should the people self regulate? Now, I would think that there's some responsibility for the owner of the platform. Um, this is oh, there's section two hundred three or something. There's a yeah. whole, there's a whole well, law basically, there's a whole, the 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 law basically holds that content that is posted by users on a website, a company cannot be held liable for the content that users put on a site because otherwise it would be an absolute nightmare to run practically any website because then you'd be responsible for whatever anybody puts on there. So you're responsible for content that you put out 
as a company, but you're not responsible for what other people put on your site. However, if your, algor if your algorithm leads to some things that people say being boosted, then you are responsible for, to a degree for boosting this wrong and misinformation. So that's where things get muddy is like if you have an algorithm that determines how visible one post or another post might be, then the argument starts to be, well, your company is putting this out there because they're boosting some things and not, and, and not boosting other things. So then to a degree, the company would be responsible. Um, but, but this is where it impedes on certain elements of free speech because... Well, know, there's also a really important thing to mention here, which is if you're a town and you operate a town square, and then your government and the First Amendment and free speech applies. If you're Facebook or Twitter or any other social media company, you're not the government. And therefore, there's no free speech protections for what happens in private spheres. Private individuals can attempt to censor other private individuals, and there's no consequences for that. It's only the government regulating free speech that is subject to First Amendment. Well, um, but, but ultimately, in the, in the, on the private end, it just comes down to liability. You know, and, and, and can you hold Facebook or any other platform? And I think what we're seeing now, we saw, I think we saw a major overcorrection where, and, and we have been shut down a handful of times for saying different, just, just for mentioning different aspects of coronavirus, different treatments for coronavirus, whether they were good or not. A lot of times we brought up these things saying, yeah, this is obviously bullshit. Um, but just because we mentioned whatever word, we got taken down even though we were trying to give kind of clear information. Um, and, and I think we overcorrected for it for a little while. I think we're seeing it come back a little bit, but we haven't dialed it in yet. And that's, that's kind of where we stand right now. I think we, we... Well, so the first question, I so your answer is, do you have a moral obligation to flag or censor false information? My answer is yes. My answer would be when the people call for it. Right. So if if I don't even know if that's necessary. <laughs> well, I, my my thinking is you don't have a problem until you have a problem. Right. So it, unless there's a problem, it needs to be brought to your attention. There needs to be an actual issue. You just can't go in regulating everything everybody says because you want to be the police of free speech. You know, if people are just having conversation, you basically stay uninvolved when you become aware of potential issues, then it's your then it's your job. And, and, you know, once you found a loophole, then it's your job to account for that loophole moving forward. I'm going to say no to that. And here's why. Um, and here's a real life example of this. In, in Burma, mm -hmm. a couple years ago, there was a genocide. So Burma has a population of Muslims and it has a larger population of Buddhists. Mm -hmm. And there was a genocide that was going on somewhat led by the Burmese military against the Muslim minority. And a lot of people got stoked into this by social media posts talking about all the terror, like completely false, like and terrible things about these Muslims that were like, having genocide committed against them. It was not too dissimilar <coughs> to the language that the Germany used 
that Germany used against the Jews in World War II. And you had tons of social media posts by politicians and private citizens talking about how these people needed to be exterminated. And that helped perpetuate and worsen this genocide. And there wouldn't have been much of a popular outcry because the only people that would have been crying out against this would have been in a very small minority in this country. Well, I don't necessarily think that most people were calling for the extermination of the Muslims. They were this for this particular ethnic minority in that country. It was pretty clear, like there, like you had posts that were being shared that were like directly calling for genocide. Mm, I I'd like to see the language of these posts, but I don't. I think I think there's a little hyperbole in 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 what we're reading into here. But uh, my point, I mean, is I could be wrong. I just I just think it's I just don't think it would be it wouldn't make very much sense for somebody in. New Jersey or Indiana or, you know, New Zealand to say, yeah, those Muslims deserve to die. I just, I don't see well, that I mean, happening on a large scale. People in New Jersey, Indiana, and New Zealand weren't, weren't the ones making these posts. It was, it was within Burma that this was all happening. Um, before we get too political, let's move on to the merchant vessel. <laughs> so go ahead. And we, you, just, we just, we got to move here. Yeah. You go ahead and uh, read this one. All right, the last merchant vessel was the trading... Uh, hang on, let me just... Oh, Rosh is saying that I'm right. Um, yeah, I'm just saying, you know, I don't have enough information about this. It seems a little crazy that... that no, it's wild what was being posted and not being taken down by Facebook. Um, all right, the last merchant vessel of the trading season is bound for home. During the voyage home, this ship encounters an unexpected storm, and four of the crew members are thrown overboard and assumed drowned. Later, though, these crew members all wash to shore on an island in which the crews frequently make pit stops during the trading season. Alongside the crew, several crates of food and other supplies also thrown overboard wash up beside them. After taking inventory of the crates, it's discovered there's only enough food for three of the four crew to survive until the next trading season when the vessels will be passing this island. If they tend to stretch out the food over four, surely every one of them will die. Should the crew accept their fate and spread the food evenly across all four, or should they choose one person to not feed who must then die? How would you make this decision? If What, what decision would you make in this scenario? And would it be a Based on age, merit, what factor um, would you draw straws? Would it be random? Um, and then finally, what if the person selected to die attempts to fight the other three and steal their food? Would the three be justified in killing the condemned man? Would the condemned man be justified in fighting back against his would-be murderers? Um, first of all, the answer is, uh, my answer is, you, you don't get to just pick somebody to die. Now you have to draw straws, of course. Mm, that, that's a way of picking. <laughs> you, uh, you don't you don't get to do that. It's the four of you are stuck, and if there's not enough supplies for the four of you to make it, then the four of you are going to die. But arbitrarily picking one person to die for, so that the other three may live, you, you can't force that up, upon somebody else. So if over the course of the the season. If like someone gets really sick or whatever and says, you know what, like I, I, I volunteer to stop taking my rations, that's fine. But it's something that somebody needs to volunteer 
to the group of their own volition without coercion. And it's also something that they can retract at any point. So, so look, here's my thinking on this. One, if you've read uh, Lord of the Flies, you can see how very quickly groupthink can turn into the group deciding one person should die. So I think that in this scenario, it would be highly probable that the larger group would elect one person to die. However, I also think this scenario is highly improbable. And I think the from my perspective, the best solution would be to divvy the portion of food that will only that only three would survive on across all four people and then attempt to find another source of food. Presumably you're on an island surrounded by an ocean, which probably has, I know you're not a fan of seafood, but it probably has an abundant aquatic uh, yeah. supply of food amongst berries and other animals. Uh, you know, and maybe you're just, maybe you're washed across a volcanic island, you know, but I don't, I don't think that to be very likely. And still, right. it's so, probably surrounded by crustaceans and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So on a practical right. level, I would agree with you. Just like you guys should be able to find like other sources of food beyond the crates that you have of rations and, and, and figure something out from there. However, you, like we, you need to look at things from just the, like boil this down to a philosophy thought experiment. Where there is no like you have to eliminate all these other choices and I, I know, the, like, but the, but the Lamborghini's purple. I get it. Yeah, the Lamborghini's purple, but like we're talking about philosophy, so sometimes you're talking about a specific shade of purple, and if you're not talking about that shade of purple, then then the rest of it, the the thought experiment falls apart. Right. If you don't understand so, the purple reference, you need to go back and watch episode two twenty four. And so my answer is that. In, in the pure sense of this question, you don't get to pick one person to, to no, I, die. I, it's I, I think either all four agree. of you die or all four of you survive. Or try to survive. Yeah, or try to survive. And if, and if by chance something happens where one person happens to die or volunteers themselves to die so to save the other three, that's fine. But it has to be their choice and purely their choice. All right, let's let's move on. I think you and I kind of both agree on this one. Yep. I'll let you introduce the immortality pill. Um, you you discover a means to create a pill capable of preventing aging for anyone who takes it. Those that take the pill physically will never age physically past twenty five, and if they're older than when they take the pill, it will revert their body back to a physical body of a twenty five year old. As long as you're not killed or don't die in an accident, you'll be effectively immortal. Which means look out for buses. Mm, yeah, uh, probably skydiving is not a good hobby. Probably don't ride that motorcycle. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, how, now, all right. So you've invented this pill. So, do you, would you take it yourself? Would you destroy it? Would you make it available to others? Would you make it available to everyone? So, you know, I've spent... Is it ethical to make a profit off of it? Um, so, my answer, first of all, is yes, it's ethical to make a profit off of it. <laughs> um, I've thought about this in, in the context of overpopulation. And that as people get older, uh, the pop, you know, they live longer, being my point. As people live longer, um, 
there are more people on Earth consuming more resources. Um, I, you know, I just read a scientist from uh, 95 years ago talking about how the, the world was going to cap out at like 3.5 billion and then come back down. And, and yeah, right they were now, spot on. Right now, the estimate is, is we're going to kind of cap out at, at 10 billion and then have kind of a rapid decline because birth rates. Oh, I thought it was like, yeah, somewhere between 10 and 11 billion. And then I thought it was going to kind of like plateau, but like gradually come down, but not like crash. Well, it just has to do. The thing is, people have more children in developing nations because infant death rates are are lower and that having a greater number of people in your family allow you to have more hands on deck, basically. But yeah, if you're subsistence, subsistence farming, the more kids you have, the more people you have working on the farm. Yeah. So you, you, you need to produce a lot of kids. But as these industrialized nations become more technological, they don't need as many hands manning the farm. Um, but the issue is when you have a bunch of people that are 25 years old living presumably forever, I well, think I think what's going to happen tensions, you're going to you're going to have a big population to deal with. Um, you're going to have certain countries that have access to this over others, you know, any way you look at it, you know, even if you decide to introduce it, somebody could just come by, slit your throat and, and take it over. There'd be, I think there'd be a lot of just rampant strife across the globe. Uh, if, if you were to introduce this pill and, and the problem is just like we're dealing with AI right now, if you don't introduce it, but you're there technologically, it's very likely someone else is, is right on the brink as well. So if you don't introduce it, you know, possibly someone on the other side of the world could be, could be 10 months away from it. So it's. Rosh points out something good. He's like, no one will ever retire. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the thing is. Here's what happens with immortality, though. You, you, you lose a lot of willpower because you're not running out of time, right? You're not, you know, I, I wake up every day rushing because I want to get things done, you know, on a small scale. And then there are bigger things I want to get done on a, on a larger scale. But when you don't have a time constraint, you, you don't need to, you don't need to rush. So you lose a lot of willpower. Makes me think of the line from Fight Club talking about that urgency, this is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. <laughs> this is your life, is ending one minute at a time. It applies to everybody as you are listening to us. Sorry, you have to be enduring these minutes with us, but um, most of you are not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, on to the next one here. Pascal's wager. Um, so you meet a local priest who says that you should be religious, and you're not. You're not religious. You meet a priest who says you should be. His argument is, if you're a believer in God and God exists, you will go to heaven. If you don't believe, you risk possibly going to hell. Your earthly life is rather short. At the most, you might live 100 years, but the afterlife is long, an eternity. So in this short life, you might as well be a believer because there's no, there's no negative consequences to being a believer. But there are positive consequences. So why not be a believer? And uh, Pascal was a believer in God. I'm not sure. I think he was. He just wasn't religious. And this is I, this is a real life example. I'm 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 pretty confident. Um, uh, so uh, Kevin says Pascal's wager is for cowards. <laughs> um, and, and and Kevin's very religious. So, uh, um, so if you don't believe in God, you go to hell. 
and at when you die. If you do believe in God, you still die. Same same scenario, except you go on and live forever. Although we we did just talk about this immortality pill and how living forever may not actually be that great. Um, so uh, I I think it would make sense in this scenario to believe in a higher power. However, if that comes along with all the habuki that you have to go through to be a religious person, then it sounds a little silly. Yeah, so part of the argument is like, well, there's not really a cost to you being a devout believer, but there is. Well, so yeah, the argument is there's no cost, you have nothing to lose. But in reality, you're expected to go to church every Sunday, and that's actually like a new minimum. It used to be it, like yeah, every day of the follow, week. And follow yeah. the basic rules of the, the religion, the behavioral things, whatever that religion may be. What, what we've say. seen over the course of the last few millennia is that religion just continues to be this uh, receding uh, way of life and, and belief system. As, as technology and science un, un, uh, uncover more, religion just kind of steps back. So, well, yeah, basically... The, the more we learn, the smaller the sphere of religion becomes. Well, religion is to cover what we don't know. And it also, and, and not just the scope of religious beliefs has receded, but also all of the traditions and what's the other word I'm looking for? Um, kind of the things that you do day in and day out, like praying over food and... and, and practices. And, yeah, the practices, what I was looking for, that go along with the religion have also receded. So... Um, you know, but again, in, in this scenario, you got nothing to lose. Sure. Well, my argument, my counter argument to this would be, let's just assume that this is a Christian priest. Well, you could have the exact same argument made by a Muslim cleric or a Jewish rabbi or a Hindu priest or name a religion and name like every well, single one of these religions is going to make the same claim. And they're all contradictory to each other, where if you do something in Christianity, it might not be okay in Islam. If you do well, something is, in Judaism, it might not be okay in Christianity, and, and the, so on and so forth. And so the is thing the, is, well, it's is impossible to take this Pascal's wager and cover all of your bases. because That's the real-life conundrum of, of actual devout religion, is that you might devoutly believe something, but three quarters to five six of the world devoutly believe something completely opposite to what you do, if so, not a larger ratio. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends. You know, not you know, not if we're talking Muslim. Who knows? You know, there's more Muslims than anybody else. Uh, all right, let's let's well, hit the next one here. Okay. Yeah, all I, right. I was going to go we're, off got, on a tangent I, about I'm metaphysics. Sure and, all right, let's leave the metaphysics uh, for a different episode. Okay. Um, Equim is a world in which everyone is completely impartial. In Equim, everyone treats everyone else with equal concern. Therefore, if a parent had the choice of saving their child or another child from drowning, they would make an impar impartial decision, um, possibly flipping a coin or simply choosing the child that's closest to be rescued. Everyone just makes decisions based on rationality yeah but everyone is 100 percent equal like in in an idealized sense mm -hmm. and for the purpose of this thought experiment let's say that the world of equim is happier than our society both on a societal level and at an individual level if you could give the people on equim a pill to make them more like the people of earth 
would you or should you? And contrarily, would you or should you give a pill to make the people of Earth more like the people of Equum? I have my opinion on this. I'm, I'm curious of yours. My answer is no to both of them. You don't change what's going on in Equum, and you don't change what's going on on Earth. I I completely agree. Um, uh, you know, I I prefer the Earth way. Um, sweet and sour, right? The sweet's only only so sweet if you know if there's some sour. So if everything's just okay all the time, then nothing's really great. So that's why I wake up with hangovers. Next one. <laughs> Let's see. Well, it, but the thing is, like, according to this thought experiment, the people on Equim are happier than our, than than the people on Earth. And so that's why I say we don't mess with them. They have a system that works for them, and it's not harming anybody. So there's no reason for us to intervene. And I would say we have a system that works for us with a huge asterisk. <laughs> but... I don't think that enforcing a global level change like that would be fair or equitable. Because well, we have a spectrum of happiness. There, you know, there are many people that are very majority of people are within a certain level of happiness within that spectrum, and there's a very small amount of people who are super happy. I, I don't necessarily think. I don't know. It's it's difficult to say you have a measure of happiness because how do you quantify happiness on a societal level? So again, that's why you just re remain hands off. Um, you want me to? It's kind of like the Star Trek like rule where like when you're exploring other planets, you're not allowed to interfere with like what's going on on that planet. I didn't know that was a Star Trek rule. I'm not, I'd probably maybe watch less Star Trek. I suppose. Um, all right. So let's. Uh, I want to skip Wittgenstein's game because that's not in our list. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's on the website, but it's I want to skip that one because it's long and complicated, and it really it boils down to what is a game. Yeah, uh, thought experiment, but it's just what is the definition of a word that has a wide definition? Yeah. Um, all right, let's this talk one's about more epistemological. So I like this. Searley's Chinese room. Imagine yourself alone in a room following a computer program for responding to Chinese characters slipped under the door. You do not understand Chinese. And yet by following the program for manipulating symbols and numerals, just as a computer does, you send appropriate strings of Chinese characters back under the door. And this leads those on the outside to mistakenly suppose that there is a Chinese speaker in the room. Does the person in the room, along with the computer program, understand Chinese? This thought experiment is a metaphor for AI. Given this example, do you think it's possible for artificial intelligence to be conscious and aware of their actions if they're simply following a... So... Because you don't understand Chinese, you're just doing what the computer tells you to do. And a yes, computer, in turn, an artificial computer, an artificial intelligent computer, isn't thinking for itself. It's just responding to the user input. Humans have told it what to do. So yeah. it's literally so the, the flip. There, here's an important distinction to be made: it, is this is different than like using like Google Translate. So, like if you go to a country where you don't speak their language, 
and you type in things to Google Translate to figure out what they mean, this is different. Because well, I mean, you, would be, you could potentially be learning in that. Well, you could potentially be learning, but you're all, like you're also going to be able to communicate with these people, and like you're translating it into a language you understand. In this case, you're just in a room, and you're just feeding characters back and forth. So you're never going like the computer is not telling you the translation for like the Chinese characters that are slipped under the door, and the computer is not translating the like characters that it prints out to send back outside the room. You're just like picking something up, entering it into a computer and then spitting something back out. But at well, no point, scenario, you're not, you you're know not what these characters mean. In this scenario, you don't represent anything more than the door itself that things are being slipped back and forth across. Yeah. But at, at no point with, without like the computer's not telling you what these things mean and you have no way of knowing what they, they mean. So when you flip this onto an artificially intelligent machine, is that machine conscious? And here's where this breaks down, my opinion, is that the way that we've looked at artificial intelligence for the great majority of time was that we were going to create algorithms and systems command line by command line to account for every potential interaction. Where we stand now with language learning artificial intelligence is that the artificial intelligence itself is now learning things that we have not taught it. So in this scenario, you, the person passing the messages back and forth, just not, not uh, knowing what the symbols say, you are now additionally contributing. So the, the artificial intelligence metaphor doesn't quite line up given the, the system of artificial intelligence that we have right now. Yeah, but even the artificial intelligence that we have right now, even its quote-unquote learning, it still doesn't understand things. And like a good example would be um, like chess. So the first chess engines were just taking a computer and having it calculate from a given position millions and millions of potential positions and then the computer would and then they'd program like the computer to figure out like based on the 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 position whether one side had an advantage or not and so the the computers got as computers got more powerful they could look farther into the future and see more potential moves so they could see a million moves and then a billion moves or whatever so they could look farther down the line they um, recently what they've been doing is they've been taking computers and they've been just having like computers play against each other and rewarding a computer that wins. So like if the computers that start out are playing random moves, they have no idea what they're doing. They're just playing a move. And yeah. then you have the computers play games against each other millions and millions and millions of times. And you pick out the computers that have the highest win rates. And then you keep, and then you just keep on refining that. And eventually you get to a point where the computers are way better than, than humans through basically random experimentation. But those computers, while they're better than the ones from 20 or 30 years ago that we program by hand, like neither, neither example actually understands what chess is. All but, it, do all it mean, knows. Yeah. Well, all it knows is, is what it's learned, but, but you couldn't then take that machine and put it on a poker table or a blackjack table or a monopoly game and it would be able to 
play Monopoly. Right, because, so, yeah, you, nor, it's nor playing poker. Even learn, nor potentially even learn those. Right, yeah. If you take a chess program and, and, and plug it into a poker software and it gets king, queen of hearts, it's going to say rook to f4. So uh, this is a good plug time for the book that I've recently written. Have I, have I told you about this book? You have a little bit, but you can go ahead maybe, and plug it again. Maybe in passing, but, but I think it's actually a good time. The book is called Beyond Human Conception, How Artificial Intelligence Perceives Our World, a Visually Immersive Experience of People, Places, Things, and Concepts, uh, all with guided interpretation by me. Uh, and what it is is a book of images that were created by AI, so you can understand what the mental image <laughs> of whatever place or thing or concept uh, in the, in the mind's eye of artificial intelligence. So it, it just basically allows you to, to see how AI sees the world I, for lack of a, you have to read the book. Um, do we have time for one more? You think yeah, you can keep on going. I'll let you know when I have to bail. All right. So, well, next one's on you. We just hit the Chinese room. Now we have Russell's Russell's, Russell's hypothesis. Russell's five-minute hypothesis. I like this one a lot. Um, I call it a slightly... I, I have a slightly different name for it, but so um, Bertrand Russell was a mathematician and philosopher um, back in, like, I think, the 1920s or something. But he says, there's no logical impossibility in the hypothesis that the world sprang into being five minutes ago exactly as it then was with a population that remembered a wholly unreal past. Um, I've called this last Thursdayism, uh, which is a real, which is a real minutes, thing. It's not, it's not your, it's not your phrasing last Thursdayism, but no, but like, I like it better. Um, <laughs> you like it better than like this. The world came into being last Thursday, and everything just happened. Like everybody just happened to have all these false memories, but nothing existed before last Thursday. It's it's. Effectively, simulation theory. Mm, no. Yeah. That if this is all simulation, we just turned it on, loaded with data. And that's one possible response, but it the the thing about last Thursdayism, it is that it is impossible to prove either way. Well, the the issue is that this potential fourth dimension this time aspect that we kind of all live in we don't really have a grasp on it so you know as time passes you know we are never we are always in the now so there's no way to really know what happened in the past because you've it's it's always fleeting you've it's experience it's behind you uh, and also you know our memory can mess it up so how do you know that what happened in the past is 100 percent and then when you start self-doubting yourself, there's really no way to well, know that the world didn't start last Thursday. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a dream where like, you wake up from that dream and afterwards you have a really hard time telling like, whether some of the things that happened in the dream were, some, were things that you made up or if like you're remembering things? Like, I don't know. There's There's been times where I've had dreams where... I'm not entirely sure whether the things that happened in the dream are things that I actually remembered and I was dreaming about them again, or if I just made it all up. 
I had, it's funny because I thought we actually talked about this in a past episode. Maybe it's a little deja vu. I'm sure I've told you this story, but maybe not. I had, I woke up one morning and I had had the night before this dream about being in a relationship with some girl. I didn't really know her. I'd never spoken to her. I just happened to have delivered pizza at her house and she was a grade or two below me. I think one grade below me and I didn't have any interaction. Um, she must have been in my mind when I went to sleep. So I had a dream that her and I had been in a long-term relationship. And then I woke up and it was slipped out of my mind. Completely forgot about it. Went through my day. Walking down the hallway come 11 o'clock in the morning past this girl. The dream comes full flush back to me as if it was a past reality. As if it was the, the, the real past. And I just stopped in my tracks trying to figure out it just this kind of flash flush of of new memories came back to me and i was just completely lost for you know three split seconds uh in the hallway and it occurred to me this person has no idea who i am this, this is a total dream this didn't actually happen but but in those three seconds i was really second guessing myself um i found that as i get older i question my recollection of the past exponentially more well, Russell's five-minute hypothesis. Let's move on to Mary's room, which means I got to switch tabs here. And Mary lives in a black and white room. She reads black and white books, and the screens in the room only display images in black and white. Um, and. And she, it, the everything she's learned that has ever been discovered about it, but she, hold on, it just uses screens read to the top. Yeah, yeah. Barry lives in a black and white room, reads black and white books, and uses screens that only display images in black and white to learn everything that has ever been discovered about color, vision, and physics and biology. One day, her computer screen breaks and starts to display color. For the first time, she sees color. Does she learn anything new? My answer is yes. Um, my question is, what color is Mary? <laughs> does, she, is she, does she have any skin pigment at all? Or is she just albino, super white? Um, but either way, let's say, let's say she can't see her own skin. And she now sees a new color um, that she has no capacity to understand. Up until this point. And the question is, does she learn anything new? Well, I think she has the capacity to understand it. But like having a capacity to understand something and experiencing something are, are two different things. So so then what's the what's the question? Does she learn anything new? I think does she, she learn anything new. Like she has book knowledge of what color is, but she's never experienced it. Um, Does she learn something new? My answer is yes. Yeah, I I think she would be experiencing what she had formerly learned about, mm -hmm. and she would know exactly what it was, and and probably her appetite for learning more about colors would would grow insatiably until she broke out of her little black and white room, or she would just bang her computer screen against the floor to try to get some more colors. Could drive her crazy. Yeah, um, it, Rosh is saying that like 
there's a she has colors there like and there's a mirror like she could look in a mirror or something and like you're like using practicality to like again well, you have to think about these thought experiments like you have to ignore some practical considerations what, what rosh doesn't understand is that the lamborghini is purple and you can't get it repainted there's yeah. <laughs> the lamborghini for the scenario can't be repainted and you must drive it even though it doesn't turn on yeah. and you can't sell it <laughs> but it's like you have to isolate these things in order to be able to have a productive discussion about these topics because when you muddy things up you can't get to you can't get to a pure answer but but that's the thing i, I think that we introduce these false constraints that that that, that limit your ability sometimes to have a productive conversation because you're not producing anything therefore thinking outside the box is what allows you to have that productive conversation. Well, and this is why some people don't like philosophy is because <laughs> like philosophy is all about isolating one thing down and trying to understand that one thing and then building from there. And I think, I think even, even when you do introduce the false constraints, it still forces you to be more clever and inventive within those false constraints. So it, it is really a mind exercise sometimes a, a brain bending exercise. Um, I, I think we're out of time though. I think we got to, I think we got to wrap up. This has been a short episode, but this is a follow-up episode to episode 224, the original thought experiments and philosophical dilemmas. Uh, I'm glad I got a chance to plug my book. The book is called beyond human conception, how artificial intelligence perceives our world. There's a lot of pictures. So if you like picture books, coffee table books, this is a book for you. You get that hardcover. It's pretty heavy. Of course uh, you would do a picture book. <laughs> um, yeah, how could I not? Um, I, will, I will tell you, this was very time intensive, intensive to create this book. Um, and and it, it boils down to having some, some awesome imagery in the book that is literally mind-blowing. So uh, for anybody interested in this book, you can buy it on Amazon. Um, I have priced it to the minimum amount that Amazon allows you to price this book. Um, because of the printing cost, because it's 400 something pages, uh, color pages, cover to cover. So, but on that note, I think we should wrap. Go buy this book, Beyond Human Conception How Artificial Intelligence Perceives Our World. We will see you guys next week. Thank you to our viewer for joining, and we will see you guys next time. Adios. This is the other end. If you like this episode, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast on YouTube or on any other audio podcast platform. All right. See you next time. Thanks. I like PBR. I just got priced out of it.